and they wanted to be identified with those prisoners to the point that they would say, you know what, even if it's going to cost me my own property and I'll be homeless on the street, I'll do that. I will do that. Last message, we began um, a dangerous journey, but I believe a well-needed one. We started a, a series addressing the question, why must we assemble in person? Why must we see each other? Why is that? Why should we do that? Why should we see each other in person, face to face? We want the Word of God to speak with all authority into our hearts um, upon this subject. And we want to be like Samuel the prophet when he said, Speak, Yahweh, for your servant is listening. If you recall, last uh, time we studied these uh, three kinds of imperative commands that in no way could we obey them genuinely in depth of those commands unless we assemble and see each other in person. And what I want to do is I want to go through those commands again just as a way of reviewing them, and we want to go even deeper than last time. And I do want to ask you to turn to First Peter 5, verse 2. That's the first kinds of commands that God has given us that we've got to obey. And in First Peter 5, 2, the scripture here is addressing elders directly. And it says, shepherd the flock of God. We are to take care of the bride of Christ voluntarily, eagerly leading them by example. Now how? How do we do that? How do we lead? And the flock is to follow our example if we don't see each other in person. How do we love you with the love of Christ, guide you step by step, leading you to Christ who is our green pastor? How do we do that? How do pastors and elders say with Paul the Apostle as in according to Galatians chapter 4 verse 19 when he said, my, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. In labor, meaning in anguish, in severe pain, so much pain as though a mother is giving birth to her child. How do we do that? Through Zoom, SMS. If we are to shepherd the flock of God biblically, genuinely, then we must see each other in person. Now, what if I go to prison? What if a police comes in and the police comes in and takes me and finds me and, and I end up in jail in obeying this command just because I'm counted as a criminal in the sight of the government. Well, verse 4, have a look. There's a great and awesome incentive here. And it says this, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the chief shepherd? Christ. Christ is the best of the best shepherd. And when this awesome and great shepherd appears, when he shines out of the sky and receives me to himself because he is the best shepherd, it says he will reward me a glorious crown. Great. Not just me. All the elders that want to be faithful in obeying God's commands. Who wouldn't want to receive such a glorious crown from the Lord Jesus? And brothers, if I would to lead by example, then do you know what I should say in a lot of this? I should say, Lord, all I want is you, Lord. And to please you is a passion of my heart. And so if it brings you pleasure, Lord Jesus, that if, they sh if I shepherd your flock faithfully 
even to the point of imprisonment, you will give me a crown of glory? Then let me shepherd your flock till the last drop of my blood. Let me spiritually take care of your bride, nourishing her, building her up, even if my bank account is depleted, or even to the point that I'm thrown like a homeless beggar in a street or in a prison. Why? So I can receive the fattest, glorious crown from his gracious hands. Right? And that's what it looks like if I would lead by example. If Ralph and I would lead by example, this is what it ought to look like. We also looked at submission to the elders. Please turn to Hebrew 13 verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. And it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Some say, well, all right, well, I'll obey them and I'll submit to them virtually. But why does it does the text say that you've got to obey and submit to your leaders? Why? Read the text. It says this, For they keep, what? Watch over your souls. It's your souls that are at stake here. Do you believe this text? Is this not the word of God? How important are your souls to you? Are they just merely virtually important? Or are they really important? Did not Jesus rightly say, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What, what would you gain if fear of suffering or sickness that no elders are really watching over your souls? Brothers, if Christ shattered heaven, if he plunged into earth and bore your sins in order to save what? Your souls. If Jesus, the Son of God, deemed your souls to be so treasured to him, so dear to him, that he didn't even let suffering or devil or, or death hold him back from rescuing your souls. That's, that's how precious your souls are to Jesus Christ. Then shouldn't your souls be equally precious in our eyes? I mean, if Jesus never put a price tag when he redeemed your souls, then what price tag would you put to not let your elders watch over your soul? And if we don't put a price tag on our souls, we cannot reduce our submission to only be virtual, can we? Let me put it another way. Let's continue reading the text. And it says there, the last part of the text, it says, let them, that's the leaders, that's the elders, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Why? Well, this would be unprofitable for you. What do you mean unprofitable for you? I mean, it's going to cost me financially. It's going to cost me Health-wise, what do you mean it's not going to be unprofitable for you? It means your soul. It's not going to be unprofitable for your soul, right? That's what it says. Meaning, if, if you're going to settle for virtual obedience, for virtual submission to somehow virtual elders in such a way that they will watch over your souls virtually, yes, you expect that we'll be able to lead you with joy and not with grief? And if we're not going to be able to be joyful over watching over your souls, and it's not going to be profitable to your souls, is it? But if you say, <clears throat> if you speak to Christ and you say to him, Lord Jesus, you redeemed our souls. You bought our souls with your blood. 
And now because we are regenerated and you've given us a new heart, new desires, we are to love you with all of our hearts, all of our strength and all of our souls. Our souls are yours, Jesus Christ. And you, since you entrusted our souls to elders, then we are not going to virtually, but really submit to the elders. How? Being there in person, interacting with them, and they are with you. So they would watch over your souls in a very real and genuine way, and thus it would be profitable to you. Why must we assemble in person? Why should we see um, each other face to face? Our God gave us clear and direct commands. And to obey these commands from our hearts, sincerely, genuinely, we must assemble in person. There are crowns that are at stake. Our souls are at stake. Do you know what else is at stake? Let me tell you what else. Now, this is something new for today's message. The assurance of our salvation is at stake. How do we know that we are really saved? How? There are so many people who claim to be Christians and they're lone rangers on their own little islands. And they say, I know, and I know, and I know that I'm a Christian. How do you really know that you're a Christian? Let me give you a couple of more imperative commands from the Scripture. Imperative commands. And I'm going to prove to you that in no way are we ever able to obey these imperative commands unless we assemble, unless we see each other in person. 2 Peter 1.10. Here is an imperative command. And Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. That's a command. Be all the more diligent. To make certain about his calling and choosing. Another one like it in the same category. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves. I believe this is, um, yep, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. What does that mean? He continues and he tells you what he means. Examine yourself. The scripture gives us an unmistakably clear kind of commands that we must examine whether we are truly saved. Now, why? Why does the scriptures do that? Is, is it because God wants us to be so paranoid? No way. Now, our, our good heavenly father, he loves his own people and he doesn't want it to be paranoid. He doesn't want you to always um, doubt whether you're truly saved or not. He doesn't want that. But why does he do that? Why does the scripture commands us to examine if we are truly saved? Let me tell you why. Because it is possible to be deceived thinking that you're a Christian when in, actually, in actual fact you're not. Thinking that you're going to heaven when in reality you are in the V-line train heading to hell. It is possible, brothers and sisters, to call God my father and I'm still a child of a devil. Now, many, many of us know this terrifying passage. Um, Brother Ralph went through it before a couple of times. I went through a couple of times as well in Matthew 7.22, where Jesus is saying that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Are these people, they're not atheists. They're not Muslims. They're calling God, Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord. Not only that, 
They believe that they worked hard for him tirelessly. They say, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? God, if anybody's going to go to heaven, it's us. We worked hard for you. Right? We, 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 we smashed all our holy projects that you gave us. You name it, God, we'll do it. Jesus doesn't deny that. You know what he denies? Continue on, verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Jesus is saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, do you know what these self-deceived people fail to do? It is not just that they fail to examine themselves whether they're in the faith. That's not true. They examined themselves. That's why they gave them, gave Jesus this evidence. Did we not prophesy in your name? Meaning we tested ourselves to see whether we are in the faith and we measured ourselves to against those projects, holy projects, and we found that we are excellent. If there's anybody that ought to go to heaven, it's us, Jesus. They did test themselves. They did examine themselves whether they are in the faith. They didn't do it biblically, did they? They weren't really genuine in really testing themselves whether they are in the faith. And that is the point of what Jesus is saying here. How? How do we really, biblically, obey this command, these imperative commands that I've just shared with you? How do we examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith? How do we do that? How do we know if we are saved? Uh, I prayed the sinner's prayer and I asked Jesus in my heart. We know that this is hogwash. It's not true. Oh, no, 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 no. When I, when I sing, when I sing Amazing Grace, I just feel with, you know, some chills through my spine so I get goosebumps every time I sing together with the body of Christ. Really? Where do you get that from? Where in the scripture do you see that that's how you ought to examine yourself whether you're in a fight? Please go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Let's, let us all pay attention to the words of the Apostle John, as he tells us how we can tell if we're truly saved. And John says this, 1 John 3.14, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we read good theological books. Is this what it says? No, let's try it again. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we like to sing Christian songs. It does not say that. Because my daddy was a Christian. Because I was married to a born-again believer. No. Because I memorized the scripture off by heart. No. What does it say? Because we, what? Love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Do we love the brethren? Question mark. That's the point. Our commitment to love the brethren validates or falsifies our claim whether we are truly saved, whether we truly put our trust in Christ. Well, someone might say, well, yeah, I understand that. That's true. I get this. But you know what? 
I, when I get locked down, um, and, and I'm at home for many weeks and many months, um, and while I'm sinking in my beautiful warm couch and I have hot coffee in my hand, uh, I tend to send a text to my brethren, maybe perhaps a quote by Spurgeon or this or that, and I make sure at the very end I put XX00XYX and I love you. Hmm. I mean, isn't this the love of the brethren that John is talking about? And if that's the case, then I must be a Christian. Right? I know it sounds funny, but it does happen, does it not? Let's drop a couple of verses to verse 16. Let's see what John had in mind. We know love, right? By this, he, that's Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love does not mean I sit on my beautiful warm couch and send texts. We can go ahead and do that. That's great. But that's definitely not what John had in mind, right? Brothers, how can we say that we are Christians if we're not committed to love the brethren? And how can we claim that we're committed to love them by willing to lay down our lives for them if we're not even willing to lay down our bums on the seats next to them and to see them in person? How? We grow in laying down our lives for the brethren if our love for them is reduced to virtual reality. And we call that sacrificial love. You know what? The scripture emphatically forbids us to think or to act this way. Emphatically. Where do I get that from? In that same chapter, have a look at verse 18. And John is saying here, little children. And then what does he say? Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. I haven't even interpreted this. I'm just reading it. John is saying, do not love by just simple words. Tongues. How do you love people only with words? Go virtual and you will only love them with words, right? But if we consider Christ, if Jesus, the only begotten, eternal Son of God, in all of His glory and all of His splendor, out of His sheer love for us, consider Him. He came in a form of a man. And you know what name has been labeled upon him when he came in a form of a man? You know one of the names? is that Emmanuel, God is among us. God is with us. Not virtually, not theoretically, but in flesh and in blood, in person. And he spoke volume of God's love for his people. So much so that in that same epistle that we just were reading in the first chapter, John reflected on that and he said, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and what touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's Jesus Christ, we proclaim to you. Oh, yeah, but I might catch a disease or I might get a fine. Well, brothers, if Jesus sacrificed his health and his wealth in the process of laying down his life for us, how can we settle for anything less than that in the way that we love the brethren? 
Or do we think that we're somehow better than Christ? Is Jesus not the ideal example for us to follow? One might think and say, well, you've got to understand that just because I see the brethren in person, it does not really mean I love them, right? You can't wiggle your way out of this, brothers. Because while it's true, yes, just because you see your brother in person, it doesn't necessarily mean that you do love your, your brethren, but Think about it. What hope do we have in growing in this sacrificial love if it does not begin with seeing them in person? Think about this for a while. How in the world are we ever going to grow in our love for them? By laying down our life for them, sacrificially, if the foundation of this love, the very step, the first step of this love is not to see them in person. And if one is not willing to even take the first step in this sacrificial love for their brethren, then how can this man have any confidence that he's saved? That's the point. Well, let's think about it so that we're not really sidetracked or uh, misapply what we're saying. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? That's apart from our works, whether good or bad. It is in Christ alone that we would be saved, not in our affection for our brethren or anything else. It is Christ that saved us and He is the one that satisfied the requirements of God's demand. Amen? But brethren, what gospel that allows us to think that we're saved if we're not committed in Christ-like way in loving our brethren? If you say that you love God and you do not love your brethren sacrificially, it really doesn't matter if we lift up our hands or how much we cry during singing. It doesn't matter how much you read the Bible at home on your own or a great theological book and you get excited about it. It doesn't matter if you do not have this life marked by love towards your brethren. Let me be forthright with all of us, yet in love. If you do not want to love your brethren God's way, biblically, then the Word of God has no encouragement for you to ever think that you're a Christian. I stand upon the Word of God and I say this to you, brothers, lest we be self-deceived. And Jesus would tell us, get out of my sight. Do you want to know that this new life that you're living is not virtual life, but it's real? Do you want to really make sure that you're genuinely saved and you're not really bluffing? I've got an idea for you, brothers, based upon the Word of God. Love the brethren. Love the brethren. Where does it begin? You've got to see them in person. Don't just see one or two brothers that you feel most comfortable with and you hang out with? No, that's not what John is saying. You've got to love the brethren, the community of the brethren that you're part of, the church. To see the church in person is what John has in mind. Right? Why? So that you begin to have true, genuine, biblical confidence that your salvation is true, is real. Another reason why we've got to see each other in person is that our interaction, obviously, by implication, is at stake. And therefore, our growth is at stake. What do I mean by that? Please turn to 
First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. We're not going to look at the entire verse, but I want to pick a couple of imperative commands. Here are imperative commands again. I just want to make sure I highlight the imperative commands that the scripture clearly demands upon us that we've got to obey them from our hearts. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Paul here is saying, we urge you, we plead with you. Please, please do this. Now, who is he urging here? The pastors? The music leaders? No? Your, your online favorite preacher? No. We urge you, brethren. Now, which brethren? In the first verse of the first chapter of this book, he tells us who he has in mind. He says, to the church of the Thess Thessalonians. It's those members of the church of Thess Thessalonians. It's all the members in this church. And he's urging them to do what? Let's have a look at a couple of the imperative commands. First, to admonish the unruly. What does it mean to admonish? It's to warn. To teach in a forthright manner. To, to reprimand, to rebuke someone. Right? That's what admonish means. Now, to rebuke who? The unruly. So the idea here is that you have someone who's stubborn, he's out of line, uh, one who's kind of bullheaded, and you're meant to give a serious advice to get him back in line. That's what it means, admonish the unruly. And obviously the purpose here, as we see across all the scriptures, it is not for the pleasure of admonishing. You know, you flex your muscles of, of how assertive and confrontational you are. That's not the purpose. What is the purpose of even admonishing those that are stubborn? To restore them back. Right? That's what we want. For people to be restored back. It's not to break their will. So to crush them with severe judgment, it's in order to bring him back to Christ. It's like someone crossing the road and there's a big bus coming, he's about to hit him and, and that poor guy can't see the bus. What do you do? You're not going to come with gentleness. You're going to be assertive. You say, hey, man, get out of the road. You're going to get hit by the bus. Why do you do that? Because you want to make sure that he's saved. He's restored. Let me give an example. Might come to someone and say, hey, brother, I don't think the way you spoke to Michael is, is the right way, man. You know, it's not really consistent with the gospel of Christ that we're commanded to live out, right? I mean, brother, have you forgotten that once we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of our hearts, that it demands upon us that we've got to deny ourselves and carry the cross and follow Christ. And since this is true, brother, you've got to make sure that we, you don't go and curse Michael. You've got to bless Michael. That's what it looks like to admonish the, the ruling, right? The unruly. Now, be reasonable, brothers and sisters. Be reasonable. How far can we go in, in admonishing a stubborn brother? A stubborn brother and still think that somehow we're going to have a positive impact upon his life without getting to know him in person, deep, personal way, where we would engage with him face to face in person so that we would earn our credibility to be able to speak to him in such manner. Let's go even further. <clears throat> That's not enough. Let's have a look at the second imperative. Encourage the faint-hearted. He's going now to the polar opposite, and now you've got faint-hearted. Those who are completely worn out because of some trial in their life. 
And this trial perhaps is so severe that it's weighing heavily upon their chest to the point that they can't even breathe. Maybe um, facing death of a, a loved one or loss of a job or maybe just severe tension and some relationship at home and it's depleting them from energy and they just feel like they just can't go on any, anymore. And we're commanded here to comfort these problems, to cheer them up, you know, like to get behind them and give them that boost so they can get back on their track. How do we do that? How do we comfort them? How do we be compassionate and encourage them? What do you think Paul had in mind when he said that? By social distancing? Hmm? By, by being in isolation from the brethren? Is that how we do it? Well, let me tell you how not to do it. Definitely not by pretending that the government is our Pope and let them dictate for us how we encourage our brethren or to live our Christian life. It would leave these discouraged brethren for dead if we do that. We've got to encourage the faint-hearted for Jesus' sake. Then guess how we should do it? Jesus' way. True? Jesus' way. Well, think of Christ. Consider Christ and how he dealt with the faint-hearted of his days, brothers and sisters. Even when there was opposition from the government and those of authority, what did he do? Think of those that were um, um, had leprosy when it was forbidden for anyone to touch a leper. Yet Jesus moved with his compassion in his tender mercy. What did he do? He reached out. He touched a leper. Then he went to Peter's mother-in-law. He touched his his mother-in-law. And what about on the Sabbath when a woman who was um, so afflicted that her back was so twisted that she couldn't even look up. What did Jesus do? His heart bled mercy for her. And again, it's the directives of the authority, even the officials who were there at that time. Yet Jesus reached out to this woman. He touched this woman, then he healed her. Just like Jesus moved with pity and touched the coffin of the widow's son and the blind and the deaf and the paralyzed, the faint-hearted of his days because his soul compassion. You understand Jesus' heart is, is a heart of gold, brothers and sisters. Full of emotions, wonderful emotions towards the brokenhearted. And he touched him. Why? Because he wanted to be so close to them. He wanted to identify himself with them. That's why. And many times, brothers and sisters, that this tender heartedness of Christ that is outside of this world is so inflamed so much. He is full of compassion to the point that, that it deafened his ears from hearing the, the voices of the directives of those officials, even to the point that it led him to die later on. And so should we encourage our brothers who have broken spirits. How do we encourage the faint-hearted? This is how we do it. We go to Christ on their behalf. We fill our minds with how tender-hearted Christ is, intoxicate our souls with the compassion of our Lord, fill our beings with clothes of how sweet, how kind-hearted, how gentle Christ is to the heavy laden. And then we let our hands be the hand of Christ 
we go to the wounded brothers. We touch them. We tell them, we want to be close to you. We want to share your burden. We want to carry your pain. Brothers, what cold, dry, virtual encouragement, cheap encouragement could ever replace Jesus' attitude to the faint-hearted? What, you, you speak through the phone? Hey, man, I heard your brother passed away. Your mother is in the hospital. I can't come to you because if I come to you, I'm just going to cop a fine. I don't want to get a fine. But there, 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 there. What, what, what do we expect a wounded brother would do? Get the phone and tap his shoulder just to get some comfort or hug it? Get a virtual hug? Why? Just so that we follow the cruel directives of the government? Then we think somehow we've obeyed this command? Brothers, the world wants us to have a stony heart toward our brethren. Our government wants us to give our cold shoulder to those who are hurting among us. And we think that this is okay. No, it's not. It is not okay. If it was up to the government, then our encouragement ought to be reduced to be a text, not a touch. An SMS, not a hug. A virtual smile, but not a real, genuine one. How can we accept this to be part of our Christian walk and yet we think that we're growing to be more like Christ? No way. But what about my fine? What about my virus? What about me? Well, let me answer this by another question. What about Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 where Paul is saying here, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And what about verse 4? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Yeah, but. It's going to be a couple of hundred bucks out of my pocket, man. Well, you don't have to turn there, but I want to show you how far people have gone in those days in order to comfort the brokenhearted. Hebrews 10.34. I mean, you can go if you like, but let me read it to you. And the writer of Hebrews, he says, For you showed sympathy. That's encouragement. To the prisoners, that's the faint-hearted. But at what cost? And he says, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Brothers, in those ancient days, early Christians went so far to encourage their brethren to a point that they were willing for their properties to be seized. By whom? Someone who hates them in the next? No, who seizes properties? The government does. And they wanted to be identified with those prisoners to the point that they would say, you know what, even if it's going to cost me my own property and I'll be homeless out in the street, I'll do that. I will do that. Much less 200 bucks, $50, or sorry, $5,000. Who cares? Why? Where do I get that from? How do I get such zeal, such passion? Look what he says. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They counted God to be faithful. 
What does that mean? If I would lose my property because I'm obedient to God's word, God is faithful. He will reward me. He will do it. He promised. He is faithful. He is able. And he is generous. He will reward me back. Not just one property, hundred times more. And so we obey God's command. Even if we're thrown out in the street or in jail. Why? On what basis? On the basis of this, God is faithful. He will reward us, brothers and sisters. If we endure in obeying his commands from our hearts. So as we come to the end, let me just ask that question again and simplify the answer. Why should we gather? Why should we see each other in person? Well, if all that we want is just to tick some boxes, so to earn some brownie points from God, if our idea of Christianity is external superficial obedience to God's command, no depth, nothing else, just an eggshell that is empty of substance? Easy. You know, offer God lip service by turning our worship into a virtual worship. Obey the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Let our love for one another to only be words and in tongues. How do we do that? How do we have our love limited to only in words and in tongue, but not in deed and in truth? So that, so that we would be superficial worshippers, pretenders, hypocrites. How do we do that? Let your love for your brethren be defined by sending a text here, an SMS there, and virtual reality everywhere. And we congratulate ourselves for being the greatest Pharisees of our days. And God will conclude that we worship Him with our lips, but our hearts are really far from Him. But brothers, let this kind of worship be for Muslims. For the Hindus, for those who don't know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a great Savior who died for all of our sins and he is our perfect substitute. And in his death, in his coming, in his incarnation, being among us, he showed us what love really looks like. Brothers, we don't have to try to be superficial so that we would earn Brownie points from God. Christ gave us his righteousness. We stand perfect, blameless in his sight. God's sight. Because Jesus' righteousness that he's given us. So throw away this concept of superficial worship. And furthermore, brothers and sisters, we have a good God. A great God that when he saved us, Guess what he did? He engraved his commands, not in tablets of stones, but where? In our hearts, the flesh of our hearts. Why? Because he desires us to worship him, not externally, but in spirit and in truth. Do you want to be sincere worshippers of God? Don't we want to be children of God that want to please their Heavenly Father with a heart that is filled with gratitude? Then we've got to obey God's commands. Not virtually, but genuinely. What does that look like? Elders, we've got to shepherd the flock in person. The flock? 
They've got to submit to the elders genuinely. Really, in person. And if we want to examine our salvation, we've got to love the brethren genuinely. And we've got to encourage the faint-hearted, not the government's way, but Jesus' way. Amen? Well, Christians, um, because of the current tension, they disagree with many things. They disagree with Romans 13. They disagree with Second Peter chapter 2. They disagree with a lot of passages in the Scripture, and everyone's got his own opinion. But let me tell you one thing I agree with. God is sifting his church. And you know what else they would have to agree with? When God is sifting his church, he's got those who worship him virtually and those who worship him in person. No one can disagree with that. Now what church would we want to be for Jesus' sake? Which one will give more pleasure, glory, honor to our God? That's the bottom line. Let me ask a question and we'll finish with that. Yes, Wes, we understand that these are all God's commands and we've got to obey them from the heart. But there is another command that says, I've got to submit to the authority, to the government. And it seems to me, damn if you do, damn if you don't. Which one should I obey genuinely? Well, stay tuned for next week. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray as the scripture is so clear that if we would want to worship you genuinely, not shallow worship, but in depth, the very least, we've got to see each other in person. Lord, we do not want to necessarily defy the government's directives. But if this is what it means in order to worship you, Lord, we pray that you would give us all the strength that we need to face what is ahead of us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.